Now, a little about my qualifications. I got my doctorate in megalomania studies from Trump University. Kyle Hayes, and I'm joined by our other co-host, Luke Boggs. Hey, Luke. Hey, everybody. Uh, In this week's episode, we're going to take a look back at the Democratic National Convention that just wrapped up on Thursday night. Um, We're going to take a look at what was going on in the lead up to the convention, including what people thought about the potential of Bernie Sanders supporters to impact the proceedings of the convention. Then we're going to take a look at the speeches from the heavy hitters, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Michelle Obama, and the candidate herself, Hillary Clinton, and talk about how those speeches are defining this race and what they mean as we leave convention season and head into the last 100 days of the election. Um, So Luke, why don't you kick us off with um, your take on what the environment was like going into the convention, um, especially as it relates to uh, Bernie Sanders supporters? Yeah, so going into the convention, there was a lot of concerns that the Bernie Sanders people were going to cause a ruckus. Uh, I know in Georgia, I was actually one of the voting state delegates to pick who the DNC delegates were going to be. So I actually, over the course of this year, have gone to two different uh, DPG, or Democratic Party of Georgia, for those who aren't familiar with the acronym, elections to pick who our delegates would be. And so one of the big things that I looked for in people that I supported to be our DNC delegates were people who were interested in coming together. And, you know, luckily, I, I Georgia sent a lot of people who I think were very strong Bernie supporters, but were also interested in party unity. That's not the case everywhere else. And so there is a lot of places where the Bernie delegates, who really aren't members of the Democratic Party in a real sense, in the same way that Bernie only recently started to affiliate with the Democratic Party, these delegates also are not Democrats. So they had far less skin in the game and sort of like keeping the Democratic Party a functioning institution. And so with that, their willingness to be rebellious was a lot bigger than the Pumas or the Party Uni My 2008 uh, that were Hillary supporters. They, at the end of the day, most of them were Democrats. Most of them wanted to stay in the party and keep active, whereas a lot of these Bernie supporters weren't. This really got beefed up and heated up because of the DNC leak that WikiLeaks released a bunch of emails from the DNC that had a bunch of negative things about Bernie in them. And then Trump was getting ahead in the polls again. And so there's a lot of concern that the Bernie people were going to cause trouble. And they really did the first night. They were pretty loud. They were booing a bunch of speakers, uh, especially anyone who was associated with the platform committee. And so I think I think the concerns were valid, but it seems that after the first night, things seemed to calm down, specifically because of the efforts of some of the Bernie delegates who were more moderate and because of Bernie Sanders himself expressing how important it was to support Hillary Clinton. Yeah, Matt Iglesias at Vox noted earlier this week that a lot of the Bernie Sanders supporters who ended up being convention delegates, since they didn't come from the Democratic Party, they actually came, a lot of them from sort of the larger protest movement, they sort of have a culture more similar to like 60s and 70s protest movements or the Occupy Wall Street movement that was a protest movement of the left um, in the early 
20 teens. Um, and so that, you know, explains also their lack of connection to the party. But yeah, it definitely seemed to calm down from the reporting I saw. It actually seemed like early on in the first day, there was, they were causing a pretty considerable ruckus. And then um, by the time that the convention moved into the national TV portion of the first night, um, that Bernie had been urging them to, um, you know, be a little more unified. Um, later in the week, I heard a report today that um, Bernie went to the California delegation, which has been particularly vocal, and told the Bernie supporters in the California delegation that, you know, it's really easy to yell and shout and protest at a convention, but it's really difficult to explain to your children how you played a role in electing Donald Trump as president of the United States. Um, so he, you know, he should definitely be given credit for, you know, being playing along with the Clinton campaign, trying to have this thing run as smoothly as possible and trying to get his supporters to, you know, voice their concerns in a productive way. But at the end of the day, realizing that this was a primary that Hillary Clinton won and the Bernie supporters needed to, you know, accept this result at this point in time. But join the Democratic Party in working to further their goals throughout the platform process and putting pressure on Hillary and keep holding her accountable. Absolutely, and I, I agree with that. And I, I actually have a couple interesting observations on what you said. The first is I know some of the Bernie delegates from Georgia basically stopped participating in the proceedings after the first night. I saw a lot of Facebook Live videos from them while major Democratic officials were speaking of them in protest on the street. Really, you know, not not participating after it was clear that Bernie was not going to have some secret revolution at the convention. The second thing is about the California delegation. Another one of the people I follow on Facebook who uh, I'm friends with that's a delegate at the DNC convention actually informed me that the California delegation was right by all a lot of the cameras and a lot of the press areas and so that's part of the reason why they were so loud and so a lot of times on tv it would sound like the whole auditorium was starting to like chant for bernie and be really riled up but in actuality it would only be the california delegation i thought that was a pretty interesting observation so i think you know really early on and i noticed several commentators discussing this really from the first couple of days of convention is that this raises the question of whether or not uh, Bernie has founded a political movement or a political faction within the Democratic Party that serves as a comparison group to the Tea Party on the Republican side. And, um, you know, at least among the more vocal ones at the convention, especially tonight in Hillary's speech, which we'll get to, but, um, you know, some of the interruptions during her speech which were evident if you were following the speech on Twitter, but weren't totally evident in the audio that was coming through the TV. Um, some of that seemed to indicate that at least some of these Bernie supporters are really committed to either the policy issues or the ideological values that they got excited about during the, the primary, um, and that they don't, they care less about playing nice with Democratic leadership, with their Democratic candidate for president and Hillary Clinton. Um, so Luke, do you have any thoughts on whether or not this 
uh, faction that Bernie has brought into the Democratic Party is going to be as much of a headache for Democratic leadership as the Tea Party has been for Republican leadership since 2010. Yeah, well, as as a proud member of the Democratic establishment, this is a sort of a double-edged sword for me because I want the Bernie people to engage in the system and be part of the Democratic Party. The big difference between what I see between the Bernie people and the Tea Party is, is that part of the reason why the Tea Party was extremely successful in beating the Republican establishment is because they became a part of the Republican establishment and they ran candidates against people they considered to be the establishment. And then what you would see quite often is that the people who were the Tea Party darlings very, very quickly became the establishment. And then there's this continuous feeding cycle of you be an establishment guy with a Tea Party guy, and then they become establishment and you have to beat them. And so I don't know if the Bernie people are going to be willing to stay with the party because so many of the really hardcore ones, the ones that really push the party to the left in a, in a way that is lasting, are currently disengaged from the Democratic Party as an organization. They are already flocking to Jill Stein or, you know, some that are you know, more concerned about the social issues or moving to Gary Johnson. And I don't know if they're going to be active in the party long term. I hope they are because they're a very important constituency and there's a lot of real knowledge on the issues from those people. And I would prefer the Democratic Party have them in there because they will strengthen the party and hold everyone accountable to what they said they were going to do. However... No, what were you going to say, Tom? Yeah, well, I think um, I think the key difference is the Tea Party movement had a pretty clear villain in Barack Obama that they were able to really lobby their case against for the entirety of the Obama presidency. Um, you know, the Tea Party... Though, though I mean, I, I would argue it goes back to the financial crash, though. And that the whole establishment is is who they are going against, and not just Obama. Obama became their ultimate villain, but they they were born out of the W presidency. Well, what you say? I no, not not necessarily. I mean, my, my at least my understanding of the history is that the Tea Party, in the really vocal and passionate form that we saw that swept the Republicans to a majority in the House in the 2010 midterms is really born out of the very angry town hall meetings around Obamacare. Um, and Obamacare, not because all these people are health policy wonks, but Obamacare is a symbol of a creeping federal government that's being ushered in by this outsider who isn't truly American, who may not have even been born in the United States. I mean, it was a it was a combination of policy that seemed threatening and then being pushed by a president that seemed um, to be not valid that I think illuminated the, the angriest part of the Tea Party. And then I think Republicans in Congress made a bet from the 2010 midterms on that they could see, you know, electoral success out of harnessing that anger at Obama. But you know, the key, if, if you accept that as the storyline, the key there is that um, if Obama is the foil and Obama is the enemy and you are meant to be the savior to fight the enemy, that 
until Obama's out of office, you can never really fully achieve your goal, which is the problem of Republicans still having a lot of discontent coming into this presidential election because they gave Republicans the House and the Republicans said, well, give us the Senate and we'll stop the Obama agenda. Then they gave them the Senate and they weren't able to do things like repeal Obamacare and pursue things like a balanced budget amendment. Um, and a lot of them, I think, would have wanted to see Obama impeached. Yeah, but I think I think a fundamental issue of the Tea Party, though, and I think it's critical to understanding them, is the fact that they were born out of the the financial crash because the whole the whole point of the tea party is that they don't trust anyone in government they decided to use the republican party as their vessel because they felt like that matched more with their values but they were not working in cooperation with those people they were attacking them almost as hard if not harder than they were attacking barack obama and that i think is really really important to point out because that is why donald trump is their candidate now is because that is the ultimate evolution of the Tea Party, is Donald Trump. Oh, but see, I would have, I think we're getting off a little bit here, but as a sort of a, a sidebar on this one, I would argue that a lot of the Tea Party were big Ted Cruz supporters, right? I, I would disagree with that firmly. I think that there's... He, had, he only had the religious conservatives. The Tea Party did not go with him in the way that they went with Trump. But I thought that the story it's, of there's, Trump... There's, there's two brands of Tea Party. There's the social conservatives, and then there's the um, cultural conservatives. And uh, most of the Tea Party are cultural conservatives, not social conservatives. Well, I think, to just to wrap that point, however, however you define the Tea Party, I think the, um, the attempts out of Hillary Clinton at this convention to embrace Bernie Sanders and his supporters are in pretty stark contrast to the way that Republican elites treated the rise of the Tea Party. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously, I don't think we can settle the question right here based on the convention as to whether or not this faction of Bernie Sanders' Democratic Party is a threat to the Democratic establishment. But I think that the acknowledgement by the Clinton campaign and their efforts throughout the convention to um, you know, give Bernie a prominent role, to give him a lot of opportunities to show party unity, and to um, have basically every speaker that was prominent at this convention um, make note of Bernie Sanders and his supporters, including the president's speech, which we'll get to, um, I think that is a pretty stark difference that might blunt the movement of the Sanders faction into the territory of the Tea Party in terms of creating a headache for um, Democratic elites. I think that's true. I also think, you know, the vast majority of Bernie supporters are saying they're going to vote for Hillary and, you know, happily do it. So I, I think I think that's important to remember. And that's a stark contrast to what the Republican Party is seeing. Um, so that was really kind of the background on what the convention looked like going in and some of what you saw among the delegates. The thing I noticed in contrast to the Republican convention is that the Democrat convention felt a little bit like an all-star game. It felt like there were heavy hitters that were, if you've been involved in Democratic politics, you would know quite a lot about every single night of the convention. Um, so I think really we could just pick out a grab bag of uh, the heavy hitters, what were some of the moments 
from um, the Democratic All-Stars that stood out to you from their speeches or what they mean for the race going forward? I, I could really get into the minutia and start mentioning House reps and senators that nobody knows exists, but I kind of want to focus on the main people that I thought really, really hit me hard. A lot of people have talked about Michelle Obama's speech. I know you want to talk about that one. But the two that really stuck out to me besides Hillary's speech were Joe Biden's and Barack Obama's. And the reason why I think those two are the ones that will probably be remembered from this convention, if no other ones are, is because those speeches took what traditionally have been considered Republican strongholds of topics, of arguments, and of just general feelings, and just grabbed them away from the Republicans, perhaps forever, or perhaps just for this cycle, being strong on defense, the idea of American exceptionalism, the, you know, shining city on a hill, all of that stuff was just strongly taken unambiguously by Joe Biden and President Barack Obama in a way that I did not expect and was really kind of blown away by because I, as, you know, as someone who voted for them in 2012, that was not the argument that they made. They made a great argument towards continuing the progress they had built, but they did not focus laser, you know, laser focus like they did on what they thought about America and how America was a great country. And I think that is in direct contrast to the argument that Donald Trump has been making. And I think that's part of the reason why it was so striking to me. I want to take a little bit of a, a lap down memory lane here. Um, because I think what you saw out of both Joe Biden and Barack Obama using um, themes and values that have traditionally been associated with the Republican Party um, and the rise of Trump's candidacy is the potential that we are actually witnessing a live political realignment. And I've, you know, I've read a few articles about this, you know, in advance of this election, and I, I sort of didn't really take them all that seriously, because these things are sort of like um, the movement of tectonic plates, they sort of happen slowly and across generations. And so it would be really difficult to see this actually happening um, right in front of your face. But I, I wanted to um, go back to 1988, and go back to the last president who had a meaningful role in electing his successor, and that was Ronald Reagan. And if you're familiar with Obama and his history, he talks a lot about how he admired Reagan's ability to be a leader of an ideological movement and to be a defining figure within a party. And he talks about how George H.W. Bush was a somewhat underrated president. Um, So in 1988, Reagan spoke at the convention that would nominate George H.W. Bush for president. And he talked about a Democratic Party that left him, not a Democratic Party that he left, because Reagan was known prior to the rise of his political career for being a Democrat before becoming a Republican. Um, Reagan would ultimately win two landslide victories, um, two landslide presidential elections on the back of Reagan Democrats. These were um, conservative Southern Democrats, for the most part, that believed that the Democratic Party had left them too, and that the Republican Party was this new um, new party that cared about their values, that cared about small government, and was really going to be a party that spoke for them. 
Um, but the reason that this is unique is that this occurred at a time when the parties were realigning. Republicans were moving towards dominance of traditionally conservative states where Democrats had long ruled, um, you know, given that this is a Georgia politics podcast, this includes Georgia um, and a lot of traditionally conservative southern states. Um, so part of the narrative that came into this election with Trump is that Trump was going to re-energize these working white working class voters. And Jeffrey Lord, who's the Trump guy on CNN, keeps calling them Reagan Democrats. Only the problem is Reagan Democrats don't really exist anymore. They've either been re voting Republican since the Reagan administration or they're old enough to be dead at this point. Um, but the reason that I bring that up is that the... Reagan Democrats come out of a party realignment. And what I got out of the use of Republican themes in a Democratic convention is that we're potentially looking at another party realignment where there might be a lot of Republicans out there. And I saw a few of them who were Republican you know, professionals and operatives who might be thinking about whether or not the Republican Party that they know has left them and whether or not this opens up an, an alley for Hillary Clinton to pursue some moderate Republicans in November. Um, so have you, you know, have you thought at all about, um, you know, party realignments or um, what you think Hillary Clinton's appeal might be to Republicans as we leave convention week? Yes. Yeah, so looking at her choice of Tim King as her vice presidential candidate, pretty much assures me that you're correct, that she is conscious of that decision. And so what I think we're, we're seeing is that the Democratic Party is taking back its mantle as the people that defeated Hitler. I mean, at this point, it's hard to tell what the Republican Party stands for because it's so divided. In this realignment sense, I think, I think what I'm taking out of this more than anything else is that the Democratic Party stands for the middle and the basic, you know, American values while the Republican Party is ripping itself apart. And so it's almost like there's not even an argument that can be had right now because Trump is so anti everyone besides white people that all of the good arguments about what makes America great are, you know, there's no one else making the argument. There's only one person saying, you know, Americans like equality. Americans, you know, America is a melting pot, and that's a good thing. There's only one party making that argument right now. There's only one party making the argument that America is a great country and that can we can accomplish great things together. Usually both parties are making that argument. And so if there is a realignment happening, I don't I don't really know what it's going to look like when it's done because right now the Democratic Party is trying to push to the left while also you know st sticking and not scaring off a lot of the you know more moderate leaning voters on uh, business concerns and on national security. So there's there's a couple of pieces of evidence I want to offer up because this is the if we're if we're considering whether or not we are witnessing a political realignment, I think this is um, the lens in which we have to look at it. So a political scientist from I think he's from George Washington University, Lee Drutman, he published an article on Vox a couple of months ago talking about his prediction for what a political realignment would look like. 
And um, he argued a lot. He made this argument really before the either of the parties got out of their primary. Um, and so some of what he is arguing in this article has actually seemed to come to fruition. Um, but so Drummond argues that Hillary Clinton, who will ultimately prevail in the Democratic primary, is going to attack to the center and end up winning the 2016 election pretty comfortably. Um, he offered that she might even consider picking a moderate Republican for her vice president, vice presidential, presidential candidate. Um, you know, Tim Kaine, not a Republican, but still fits that mold. Probably the closest, yeah, he's probably the closest you could go to picking a moderate liberal or liberal Republican as your nominee. Um, so Drutman's prediction is that a president, Hillary Clinton, is going to focus on business-friendly policies that are going to drive a wedge between the never-Trump crowd, the business-friendly and establishment Republican crowd, and the ethnocentric base of Trump's party. Um, and that the moderate Republicans are going to go into a mode where they try to protect the existing Republican coalition, which is the moderate business-type conservatives and the Trump faction of the party. And this this responsibility is going to fall to Paul Ryan, who likely is going to keep his speakership because they're, at least in my opinion, and at least at this point in Lee Drutman's opinion when he makes this argument, is that it's kind of unlikely for Democrats to retake the House. Um, so Paul Ryan, in an effort to protect his House majority, is going to further decentralize the House, which is one of the things he did in his first take at the rules when he's nominated Speaker. And he's going to allow multiple factions of Republicans and Democrats to compete for power and legislative authority. Um, you know, Presumably this might result in doing away with the Denny Hastert rule, which requires that a majority of the majority support legislation which I would, I would point out really quickly that that is an informal rule. So literally, if Paul Ryan wakes up one day and decides, I don't care about that anymore, he can get rid of that rule. It's just, it's a completely informal rule. There's nothing on the books that makes right. him do that. Um, and so the resulting environment in the House starts to make Congress look a little bit more like it did during the Reagan era, which we all look back fondly on as a time where Reagan worked with uh, Democratic House Speaker Tip O'Neill and that they were able to get a lot of legislating done um, with a split government. I would like to pause on that, though. All, in, all, all logical people think that Paul Ryan is probably going to run in 2020 if Hillary wins. I think this theory makes that impossible for him because if he's working this well with Hillary Clinton, then what is his argument for beating Hillary Clinton? I think, I think those like that reality doesn't either like Paul Ryan decides to stay house speaker and get a lot of stuff done with Hillary Clinton and almost ensure her reelection. Or he continues to be the huge impediment that he has been and ensures that government stays divided and nothing gets done. On that point, I would actually challenge the, presumption that Paul Ryan plans to run for president. So I, I think the difficult thing about if if you really do see a breakdown of the Republican Party post-2016, it, it makes it look really difficult for any aspiring 2020 Republican candidate to collect a coalition that could help them defeat an incumbent president. 
and incumbent presidents tend to already have an advantage. Um, so even though Hillary would be the 2020 reelection of Hillary would be a fourth Democratic running running for a fourth yeah. Obama term, I think that both the fracture in the Republican Party and um, incumbency advantage that she would have would make it really difficult for any candidate. And I think that that so I also don't. I'm not sure that Paul Ryan actually would want to be president. Um, he originally didn't want to be speaker. And so I'm not sure that he, um, that, that he is like a ladder climber more so than he wants to find his sweet spot where he can do policy. I also think that if you look at the Obama experience, um, you know, Paul Ryan and before him, John Boehner and the Freedom Caucus in the House have been a thorn in Obama's side in achieving his legislative agenda. And if Paul Ryan is truly committed to his legislative agenda, he might want to stay in a position where he feels he has more power and he might have more power in the House than he does um, as president of the United States. Um, you know what? I'll bite on that. I, I will I will put a pin in that discussion of if Paul Ryan would grow and say I think that is a, a possibility that he might just stay in the house because you are I think you are correct that Paul Ryan despite not getting the fancy title and hail to the chief plague everywhere he goes he has a lot of power as house speaker and that's real power that is not term limited. Um, so the second piece of evidence that I wanted to talk about related to political realignment is. The question that I have after reading Lee Drutman's article is, is the Republican Party really that fragile? Because if you look at them coming out of their convention, yeah, a lot of prominent Republican figures didn't show up, but it sort of feels like rank and file Republican voters are rallying around Trump and at least accepting that this is the party's nominee. And if Hillary Clinton is your foil as a Republican and you continue to hate the Clintons the way the Republicans did in the 90s, is the Republican Party really that fragile? But the second piece I wanted to highlight is an article, an interview that Vox did with Avik Roy, who's a um, pretty well-known, at least among conservative health policy circles, as a, as a conservative health care wonk. Um, and he, in this interview, talks about... Um, the mistake, he, he talks about that the Republican Party actually does have to die and that um, the original mistake of conservatism was to align itself with an ethnocentric, with a white ethnocentric Republican Party and that sort of the original sin of modern conservatism is for it to have risen under Barry Goldwater, who um, we've talked about before. Um, so Roy makes this case that the conservative elites have never really wanted to believe that um, at least a significant portion of the Republican Party cares more about white identity politics than they do about conservative principles. And that because they haven't wanted to believe this, they've been sort of blind to the fact that it exists in the party. And um, the thing that you find in the Trump candidacy is that Trump does well in a Republican primary without actually being a conservative because he speaks to the portion of the party that also doesn't really care about conservative principles and instead favors white ethnocentric 
approach to governing, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to um, using the power of government. You know, Trump seems to be willing to be more aggressive and in some senses more progressive for the groups that he favors. And that um, seems to go against conservative orthodoxy. The other important point from the conservative perspective is that conservatism in its purest form does not seem to really jive with white ethnocentrism because conservatism talks about equal opportunity in the free market for anybody who's willing to put in the work um, and that the um, the riches of a free market economy should not be withheld from people for any reason other than whether or not they've done the work to earn it. And so this was illuminating to me because when you look back at welfare reform from the 90s and when you look back at a lot of conservative policy proposals in recent years, there's this sort of tone deafness from Republicans where they've often sort of rejected the notion that their free market policies could actually disproportionately hurt minorities or women or, or certain ethnic groups. But it really is this sort of bedrock belief that if you, if you exist and if you govern only on conservative principles, that you will bring about equal opportunity for everyone willing to participate. And um, that that is, you know, that belief and the commitment to that is part of why they don't think that they have to do identity politics in the way that the Democrats do and why they are sort of shocked to learn that conservative principles don't really comply with white ethnocentric politics that's brought up by Trump. Um, and so the point of all that is to say that you have Republican elites here during the Democratic convention, or I think this interview actually happened in Cleveland last week, saying during the middle of an election season that conservative principles and the Republican Party are really actually at odds with each other and that um, the party does have a significant problem, which is probably going to keep it from um, living beyond this election. And... Um, well, how about how about we pause there? Because I think that is something we're just not going to be able to know for sure until after this election's over. So I think a good question to ask at this point, though, because I've seen it come up in the media a lot. Some of my friends have asked me about it. Is the Democratic Party in a similar position in that Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are two different wings of the Democratic Party, and these two wings don't like each other, and they're going to tear each other apart eventually? Are Democrats equally vulnerable to something like that. I think that gets back to our to our earlier point about whether or not the Sanders faction is a is a corollary to the Tea Party. And I I still I still think that they probably aren't or at least the Democratic Party has and is sort of self-aware enough to blunt some of that negative influence and maybe willing if they can find a willing partner in um, their um, in their left flank to actually navigate that a little better than Republicans did. Um, the, the other thing that I think is key to that is that the 
there is going to be this tension in the Democratic Party between the fact that right now they have a relatively small legislative coalition because they don't have huge numbers in the House and they're close in the Senate, but they aren't quite there. If the Democratic Party wants to expand, wants to retake a majority in the House, Matt Iglesias makes this argument where Democrats have to be willing to bring into the tent of the Democratic Party the far left, the middle, which is really the the dominant part of the Democratic Party right now, but then also more conservative or moderate Democrats who can win elections in seats that are currently held by Republicans. That is the only way, especially the way the districts are drawn right now and the way that people have somewhat sorted themselves in terms of where Democrats and Republicans prefer to live. Um, For the Democratic Party to be a majority party, again, they have to open up their doors to a wider ideological range of people. And the thing that'll be interesting to see is if they're successful in doing that, and they do pursue some moderate Democratic candidates and get them elected, will the Bernie Sanders people feel particularly threatened by the new Democratic moderates that help Democrats gain a majority? And at that point, does it become maybe a rule or sort of a a condition that a majority party is naturally bigger than a minority party. And to be a majority party, you have to have a wider range of views within the majority party. And does just being the majority put you in the situation where your far left flank and your moderate flank or your far right flank and your moderate flank are always going to be at odds with each other and sort of put you through this like self-destructive cycle? So I think that's a great point, and I actually think I have an answer to it. I think if your earlier question of if are we witnessing a political realignment, if that holds out to be true, I think that constant destructive cycle will not happen. And the reason I say that is because whatever comes out of that realignment, eventually, it might take a while. So you might be right that that cycle happens for a little bit longer. But if we actually have a real realignment where the Republican Party is significantly changed and the Democratic Party is significantly changed, I think that will break that cycle. Now, on the other point of can the Democratic Party make this work, again, I'm going to harp on Obama's speech. I think that is the blueprint for how you make it work. And the reason why I'm not saying Hillary's speech is that because she's campaigning for an office against a particular opponent. And so she was articulating more of why she should be president rather than why Democrats are better than Republicans or have, you know, a different vision for the country. And so I think Obama was in this unique position where he, while he was definitely strongly advocating for the election of Hillary Clinton, he was simultaneously talking about his legacy talking about what Democrats had accomplished, what they believed, and what they wanted to continue to do. And so he was in this very rare position, which I think he he painted the picture of how the Democratic Party could become the new majority party in the United States by being a party that is cognizant of what issues people care about and what worries people, while not always siding the way those people would want always being aware of the damage they're doing. So, for example, if they have to go against coal country, they understand that that is something those people are not going to like, and they will have an alternative economic plan for them. And on 
national security, a thing that we all care about. The Democratic Party will have strong solutions to it, even though it might make Americans feel better to constantly be referring to Islamic radicals, that they won't do it because that will make the situation worse. And I think that sort of broad picture that he painted for Americans to have a fierce love of country and a fierce belief in what America could do without going down the dark nationalism rogue that Donald Trump is trying to take us down, I think that is the picture of what the new Democratic majority would look like. And I think, to your question of if the Bernie people would revolt, in at least my knowledge of the Democratic Party and the reading of the Democratic Party that I've done, I think there's one thing that we really need to remember here and think about when we talk about this is that if anything, the Democratic Party is returning to normal right now rather than going to some new reality. Because the Democratic Party that that Bernie Sanders wants is more of the Democratic Party of the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And it took us losing three presidential elections in a row and the election of Bill Clinton to create the party we currently have. I think Obama's changed the party significantly in a way I think is extremely positive. And I think a lot of the problems with the Democratic Party of the late 60s and 70s, Obama has like gotten around somehow. And I think part of that is because the American people have become more progressive in general. And I do say progressive instead of liberal because I think there's a little bit of a difference there. And I think that is part of the big difference. That I think there is a solid difference between the Democratic Party that Obama believes in versus the one that Bernie Sanders believes in. And so I think if Hillary Clinton can continue that vision that Barack Obama has made and get some buy-in from the uh, Bernie Sanders supporters as Obama has, I think that keeps us from tearing each other apart. Because if there is a group of people trying to keep us down the Obama path, and then there's a people trying to take us back to the 70s, I think that is where we're going to get in trouble, because the Democratic Party of the 70s was not good. It was not in a place that could fight for what it believed in on the same turf as the Republicans was fighting. The um, On your, your point about um, Obama and how he's orienting the Democratic Party... I think what's what's interesting to note from a historical perspective is that the 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 themes that both Barack Obama and Michelle Obama used in their speech um, in their speeches talking about American values of you know family values and patriotism and um, you know the strengths of America what has happened in the Obama presidency. Um, that I think is pretty striking is that the sort of these ideas in a Republican form sort of felt like 1950s white America values. And the, you know, culturally, the, you know, the, the rise of minority communities, um, a diversifying country, those things seemed to be threats to those sort of 1950s white America values. It is striking to me that Obama is able to take those stated values and explain them in pretty much the exact same way. You know, he talked about the the values that his 
that his white grandparents from Kansas instilled in him um, and that those values are no different than the values um, that Michelle Obama's parents instilled in her and Michelle Obama's parents are the descendants of slaves. Michelle Obama in her speech talks about how incredible it is to watch her young, beautiful black daughters play with the dog in the White House lawn while sitting in a White House that was built by slaves. I think what is very evident in the Democratic Party, and I think if Hillary Clinton is to win this election in November, I think it'll sort of validate this as something that is happening across the nation, is that American values are not just white 1950s values anymore, and that it's possible to talk about America's founding and American exceptionalism while telling stories of non-white people. And it's what is striking to me is how seamless Obama is able to weave that into his speech. And to, I'm sure, at least to most Democrats and probably even to some true conservatives who aren't Trump Republicans. Eric Erickson said that Obama's speech was the speech that we should have been given. Yeah, and I, I think that to to Democrats and maybe to some of these conservatives that that actually does not feel weird at all, that it feels very American to talk about a country of immigrants and talk about how um, we take different religious holidays and cultural holidays and different traditions and different food and weave them into something that is uniquely American. And that that is a tradition that is not only a white tradition, but is also a non-white, a very diverse tradition. Um, and if that is sort of the, if that is a narrative and a culture in, a, in America that's accepted by a larger majority of the American people, it really does move Trump's coalition to this sort of non-winning faction in politics where there just aren't enough people that believe that American values should be only white values and we need a president who needs to talk about white interests that group of people is going to be too small to win an election. And hopefully, hopefully I think too that, small. But I think that what is what is sort of relieving about 2016, if you are somewhat disturbed by Trump's rhetoric, is that we are actually going to get a real test case of that. Because the you know at the at the Democratic convention they're chaining Black Lives Matter and talking about how the White House is built by slaves. And at the Republican convention they're not even willing to touch anything like that. Um, and it was notable at the Republican convention for them to cheer Peter Thiel, who, who said he was gay and proud to be a Republican. And then for Trump to mention in his speech, but like, that's only really a narrow slice of the diversity that is represented in the Democratic Party. And the fact that the Republican Party, Trump's Republican Party was even willing to talk about it was notable. I think this is a good time for us to move on to Hillary's speech and how we think the race is going to play out from here. Um, yeah, definitely. So um, I think it's worth it to start with um, some of the some of the optics of the speech, some of the you know the the technical parts of it. Um, so Hillary Clinton to this point has been pretty well known for not being a great speaker. 
she's admitted that herself. She's said multiple times that she's not the campaigner that her husband is and she's not the campaigner that Obama is. Um, and so, you know, I came into this speech with pretty low expectations because of both that self-admitted, um, you know, self-admitted weakness as speech giving as a skill and some of the commentary that I heard from Nate Silver today where he, you know, went back and reviewed some previous nomination acceptance speeches and that part of what happens in when you are the presidential candidate giving a nomination acceptance is that you have to touch on so many different things in a speech that it makes it difficult to have some sort of unifying theme throughout. And so whereas Bill Clinton's speech, um, which we didn't really touch on, but it you know is worth noting that Bill Clinton's speech is really a narrative of Bill and Hillary and how Bill um, really did play a supporting role in Hillary's life and in Hillary's career. So it had one unifying theme throughout. And even though he did it... And, and that she played a supporting role. Yeah, that is. they were supportive of each other. It solidified that narrative that probably some people would be new to believe that they aren't just a cold, calculating political couple, but they are actually a couple that loves each other and supports each other. And um, the most telling moment from that speech for me was that Bill said, um, without ever mentioning the terrible year that was 1998 for Bill and Hillary, um, and without mentioning sort of the ongoing struggles in their marriage, Bill didn't talk about any of that, but the line that stood out to me is he said, Hillary will never give up on you. And the next line that Bill was probably thinking or that he could have said in the speech that would have alluded to this, he could have said, Bill, he could have said, Hillary will never give up on you because she never gave up on me. Um, I think that was the subtext of what he was trying to say. But so for, for Bill Clinton's speech, it's, it's one long narrative throughout Obama's jumped around a little bit, but sort of carried the narrative. Convention speeches from accepting presidential nominees don't actually have the privilege of carrying a single narrative throughout. And so what I was impressed with is that Hillary, because she's known as a policy wonk, was to me came off as credible in talking about a bunch of different separate fragmented subjects a lot of it was policy some of it was her view of america some of it was her criticism of trump but because at least i know her through this sort of really complicated way in which her mind works where she sees all of these sort of disparate separate issues as connecting to each other and being a part of this larger ecosystem and that she sees her role as president as being the person that finds all those connections and facilitates good things happening, good legislation, good policy, she came off to me as really credible cramming all that stuff into a single speech. And it made me think that um, you know, if she wins the election, she's going to give some damn good State of the Unions because that is really where that kind of format is acceptable. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the other thing that I think is, you know, what I got out of that speech is, one, I think it's one of the better speeches she's given. And two, I think what really hit me was a sense that Hillary Clinton was telling America, everyone who's been voting this year, you are not wrong to be frustrated. I am also frustrated. But 
Donald Trump doesn't have anything to offer you because he has no intention of actually fixing any of these problems. And I have get, laid out how I want to fix these problems, and I can fix these problems, but only with you. I can only fix these problems if you join with me to fix them in comparison to Trump's message, which is, I'm Donald Trump and I'm going to fix everything because I'm Donald Trump. Believe me, I'm going to fix everything because I build the Great Walls. <laughs> and so it, it, it's just... To me, I think that is the real sticking point of her speech. If you just break it down to its most elemental form and then compare it to Trump's speech, we have one candidate who is saying, I alone will will fix everything, versus another candidate who really is not giving a remarkable message of, let's, let's fix all of this together. And I say it's not remarkable just because... That's pretty much the speech that, like, every presidential candidate in the history of the United States has given. Pretty much everyone said, hey, America, let's work together to fix these problems. As in comparison of Trump, who's like, hey, America, I'm going to fix these problems. Even if you don't want me to fix these problems, I'm going to fix these problems. And I just think that's a really stiff contrast to think about. The, the other thing that brings up is that that message of stronger together and we're going to work together to solve these problems fits right into what Obama said. One of the strongest lines of Obama's speech was that, um, that we are, you know, Americans make progress through devoted commitment to self-government that we are not a people that looks to be ruled. It's a great line. Um, And then that theme it was a fantastic line, and then it echoed through Hillary's speech, it echoed through Biden's speech, it echoed through Kane's speech, and it was a demonstration to me that the um, Democratic Party, as we head out of the convention and into the election, seems like a very coherent, organized, well-oiled machine, down to the continued themes of their argument against Trump that was present from in some form or another from every speaker that spoke that was at least was notable. I think that's true. And I, I, I know offline we were talking about this, so I think this is the perfect time to bring it up, which is this election will serve for all time as an example, a control experiment of do campaigns matter? Do part, does party organization matter? Does running a good convention matter? Because I think it's not a partisan thing to say. Because obviously, people, I am voting for Hillary Clinton. If that is a shocker on this show, then I don't know why you're listening. But that being said, I don't think there's anyone who is reasonable who would say that the RNC convention went well and was a well-run thing and that had a lot of messages that ran, you know, matched together and all the speakers were on point and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that's going to be said. I also would say most people would agree that while the DNC convention might not be the greatest convention ever held, it was a perfectly competent, good convention and nothing really bad happened. It was completely good. I think it was a really good convention, but I think everyone could agree that it was a decent convention. So with that in mind, it's going to be very interesting to see 
what the polls look like in about three weeks. Because Trump has seen a bounce in the polls. I think that is a combination of the fact that the DNC had some problems. The FBI report had time to sink in of Hillary not um, being indicted but heavily criticized. And Trump had his convention. And so what I think is actually interesting, and I might, you know, a lot of people might disagree with me on this, I'm honestly surprised that Trump's league is not bigger considering everything that's happened. Because I would think his, his league would be bigger. Because his balance has actually been kind of small considering all of these factors that happen. I actually think, so one, one explanation for that might be the explanation offered, um, I can't remember who wrote this article, but we'll put it in show notes. Um, it was either Vox or 538, um, which are two fantastic sources on the sort of nitty-gritty of how this stuff works they should be paying us for how much we advertise them. they get free advertising from us all the time um more than trump probably not paying us because i can't remember which one wrote this right now but the good point um whoever wrote it um they noted that the polls at this point traditionally within the race so on convention weeks or within the period where the two parties' conventions are held, because usually the parties actually hold their conventions further apart. That And later and, in yeah, the year. Later in the year. Um, that the polls at this point during convention season are actually less predictive of the final result than they are earlier in the primary process um, before the conventions, that they, they sort of reach a pre-convention peak of their predictability of the final result and then the primaries and the conventions happen there's a lot of sort of noise and mess in between um and the the predictability of the polls dips pretty considerably and then about um sort of towards the end of august which is usually you know maybe about a week or two weeks after convention season ends and you sort of hit the final stretch of the campaign that the polls then sort of shoot back up in their predictive ability and stay about steady from September all the way through election day. And so the... Yeah, that was actually what I was getting at, though. Because what I was about to say is, I expect that Hillary's going to get a bump out of this. And I expect it's going to be big. And that's why I said I kind of want to see what happens in three weeks from now. Because that's why I think the polls will have stabilized and that we kind of have an idea of how this thing's going to shake out. But the reason the so the reason that Trump's lead might not be bigger is because if you so if you held the election, maybe not tomorrow at now after the Democratic convention, but if you held the election the Friday after the Republican Yesterday. convention, um, Trump would, you know, at least 538's number showed this Trump would have actually won the election fairly comfortably um, and so that that prediction might have been more accurate about where the polls were in that exact moment, whereas the actual polls were sort of underselling Trump's strength in that moment. But, um, you know, but that is because it's in the middle of the convention season and the polls are noisy. And that I guess what's interesting to consider about the convention bump is when you know, if you see Hillary's standing sort of regain the six or seven point lead nationally that she had prior to the conventions and prior to the FBI ruling on her emails, um, is that actually a convention bump or is that the polls returning to where they are 
when people actually have to make decisions about who they're going to vote for? Yeah, I think that's a great question because at least in a lot of the polls that I've seen, there's still a solid, what, 20% undecided? Is that what you've been seeing? Um, well, I'm not sure because a lot of, because some of those are starting to filter into um, Third Johnson parties. and Stein, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought, because unfortunately, some of the polls are still not including them, and I know 538 really prefers uh, the polls with the third parties, because um, you are right that some of the undecideds uh, go to Johnson in that scenario, and also it's it's important to see who's losing more support out of the third parties, which uh, apparently from articles i've read hillary clinton seems to be losing more but again it'll be very interesting to see if that holds true now that this convention's happened and a lot of the uh, bernie people have had pretty strong arguments to come home to um to bring this to georgia real quick um you know you always have to be wary of individual polls but um wsb tv released a poll um in georgia showing that trump um, was only leading Hillary Clinton. Uh, he had 45.5% of the vote, and Clinton had 44% of the vote. Um, but the, the interesting part of that poll um, was that Gary Johnson had 5%. This is, in, this is in Georgia. So Gary Johnson had 5%, and Jill Stein had 2%, and that only 3% of voters are undecided. But that if you look... So if there is some movement from either, say, Jill Stein supporters or Gary Johnson's about the, you know, if they start to believe the argument that a vote for a third party is throwing your vote away, um, and those votes do go to Clinton instead of Trump, it actually raises a real possibility that, um, you know, Trump could lose Georgia, which... um, no, it's it's true, because the thing I would point out from the beginning, and this goes for all the polls, not just this poll in Georgia, is that traditionally the third parties get a lot more support in polls during the summer than they actually get in the vote at the end of this thing. And so if there is a lot of movement, especially after this convention, back towards Hillary, I think it puts Georgia completely in contention. And I don't think we've mentioned this on this show, but as I've been watching uh, both the RNC convention, the DNC convention, and just television in general, I've seen Hillary ads, but I've not seen any Trump ads. So I thought that was really interesting. Trump's not spending any money anywhere yet, I don't believe. Not entirely true, because he's all over, every time I go on Politico, there are Trump ads popping up. Um, what an odd place for him to spend money. One, it's weird. And then two, half of them are this like quote unquote patriotic picture of Trump wearing one of his hats next to a space shuttle launching, which I swear I have never heard Trump say one thing about NASA or going to space. And so like, I have no idea why that was in his ag. And so I, I just thought that was really, really funny. If you care about NASA, vote for Trump. He'll put a Trump tower on the moon. Oh God. Um, the the other interesting thing about the Georgia poll, um, and I I saw this on Twitter. I'm again losing who it was that tweeted this, but Clinton's number is actually fairly close to the performance of Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn in 2014. Her being at 44 percent. That the the difference is not that Clinton is necessarily doing better right now. 
than a couple of well-known Democrats did in the midterm. It's that Trump has lost the some of the Republican vote share that Nathan Deal and David Perdue got in their races against Carter and Nunn. And that so it's it's not even at least right now that the Democrats are doing better. It's that Trump is squandering a lead that should be built in for him in a Republican state like Georgia. Well, what well, what I'd say is Georgia is actually one of the few states that I think is not a swing state. Well, correction has not been considered a swing state. I think it is a swing state if you invest the time and energy into it that you invest to other swing states. So that caveat existing. It's one of the few states that's not considered a swing state. That electorates actually are determined by a moderate middle. I think most of that moderate middle leans Republican, and that's why the Republicans keep winning in Georgia, why Nathan Deal won, why David Perdue won. But I think in this election, with Donald Trump as the Republican nominee, this is like the textbook reason why some of those voters that traditionally vote Republican... I would say a lot of them in the Atlanta suburbs would switch and vote for Hillary while voting for Republicans all the way down the ballot after that. You know, because I don't think there's going to be Hillary Clinton wins in Georgia and that somehow beats Johnny Isaacson. Um, I would be very happy with that as a Democrat, but at the same time, I think the voters that are willing to vote for Hillary Clinton are the people who are also probably happy with Johnny Isaacson and the perception that I don't agree with that he's a moderate, but that's the kind of people they want. And I think those moderate swing voters are up for grabs in Georgia, and if someone goes after them and really, really tries to win them, then Georgia could flip blue. And I think especially if the third-party support starts to go down, if all the Democrats come home after convention, she sees a boost, and you know, she stays steadily ahead in this race, I would be very, very surprised if there's not some action from the Hillary campaign in Georgia. I bet you'd see a lot of Tim Kaine rolling around Metro Atlanta. I hope so, because unfortunately we never got to talk about Tim Kaine on here, but I was going to you know, share with everyone that Tim Kaine was my first choice for Hillary, Hillary's VP out of everyone she had, because, you know, some people I, I was interested in and was considering would not have worked out because it would have threw the Senate, which I think is just too important to, to risk that. And so Tim Kaine was the one I thought matched her in experience and really would solidify her chance of, of unifying the Democratic Party, but also attracting new voters. An interesting tidbit on Kaine. And so Georgia, to me, is a pretty um, good test case for whether or not Hillary Clinton might feel that she has the room to push a political realignment a little bit. And this is where I think you and I disagreed on the the last episode we did, where I thought if you take Trump as a non-viable candidate, then Hillary has both the freedom because she'll probably win the election. And I think the responsibility of trying to extend her outreach both towards her left, which she seemed to do at the convention this week, and to her right to potential moderate Republicans, a lot of them in the Atlanta suburbs. I think, you know, if she was able to win Georgia, um, this would be a pretty good test case on whether or not she believes the realignment theory. One reason I mentioned Kane here is that Kane, his uh, father-in-law is the, is a former Republican governor of Virginia. Um, his last name's Linwood. I can't remember his first name now. 
But uh, Governor Linwood, a Republican in Virginia in the 1970s, was a leader in school desegregation efforts. Um, and he bucked the trend of a lot of the old segregationist conservative Democrats that were um, running Virginia politics at the time and, um, and pursued a school desegregation agenda. Uh, Linwood was from a small town in southwest Virginia, which is on the near the Kentucky border. And um, there's still a pretty good fondness for Linwood in that part of Virginia. And so Tim Kaine in his Senate race went to this area that is still heavily votes Republican, um, but campaigned both as the um, son-in-law of a former popular governor and as a person who also cared about school quality and school desegregation and, and racial justice and was able to outperform Obama in among the voters in that county that Linwood is from. So it's not only is it, you know, Kane for his temperament and his dad jokes and the fact that he's a white man not only are those... And, well, also let me point out that the other reason that I like Tim Kaine is that he's extremely knowledgeable on foreign policy, which is very important now. And, most critically, he's extremely progressive as a person. His voting record might not reflect that, but that's because he was trying to represent his state and the views of his state. But his own beliefs and what he's pushed for, both in his private life of and, you know, volunteering and doing mission trips and what he talks about and he cares about, he is a deeply progressive person. And it is irritating to me when people try to act like he's a conservative. That is just completely absurd. He is a Democrat through and through, and he believes everything that Hillary Clinton believes and is not some closet conservative. He is a hardcore Democrat, and he believes in progressive values and, you know, had to take some positions to be viable in Virginia, but also represent the people of Virginia and help push them towards progressive values. But yeah, that's that's part of the reason I do like Tim Kaine so much. Although the, the, the other piece of that is that he is personally pro-life, but votes as a pro-choice Democrat. So, um, so he's, he's maintained his uh, progressive credentials on um, on choice issues in the Senate, but his Catholic heritage and the fact that he's personally pro-life are sort of this illustration that he can both be a strong progressive as a senator through his voting duties, but can also understand and feel empathetic for the views of people who disagree with him. And I think that that, that temperament combined with his sort of all shucks dad jokes personality makes him both uniquely appealing to moderate Republicans who Hillary should be targeting and his, you know, fighting for racial justice, fighting against housing discrimination, the fact that he was a missionary um, in Honduras and speaks fluent Spanish could also appeal to, um, non-white progressives i at times i feel like somebody went in a lab and just like invented tim kane but he's been a pretty solid democrat for what like 20 years now <laughs> like, uh, probably longer. I, don't, I don't know i really don't know how you 
get through an entire long political career and sort of maintain both your likability and your um, appeal to a lot of different kinds of people. But somehow Tim Kaine has pulled it off. And I think that that is definitely an under um, undercovered part of his selection as her her not her VP nominee. Yeah, because I, I have a lot of friends who live in Virginia and they have been speaking of Tim Kaine in the highest regard for a really long time. And so Tim Kaine had kind of been on my radar for a while since the people of Virginia love him. And also I'd like to point out, as I was watching on C-SPAN, Tim Kaine was like waving an American flag through half of Hillary's speech, like very vigorously, which was just like the most hilarious and cute thing. And so uh, to everyone who is doubting that like Tim Kaine is not going to be as interesting as Joe Biden, I think that is that is probably going to turn out to be false and we're going to have a whole lot of Tim Kaine memes once the onion figures out how to make fun of him, it's going to be really, really good. Well, they'll probably start with that Donald Trump impersonation that uh, that he gave <laughs> as a part of his speech because it wasn't good at all. But that's no, what made but I don't it think, I don't think he cared. I don't think he cared. <laughs> that's it what made good. it great. I mean, yeah. Um, if if Joe Biden is America's uncle, who says inappropriate things at times, but you still love him anyways. Tim Kaine is uh, America's dad who says all of the things that make you want to cringe. Um, that So I, I saw this tweet the other day that said, um, Tim Kaine is the, the dad that catches you smoking weed at a friend's house and doesn't rat you out, but has a conversation with you about brain development. <laughs> I saw that, that too. Who Tim it's is. so true. So... Um, I think in terms of lovable vice presidents, I don't think that is going to change all that much with the next administration. Which I think, yeah, I was about to say, us having to suffer through, sorry, Al Gore, you're kind of boring, Al Gore, and then like Darth Vader himself, Dick Cheney, I think America deserves that. Um, And it's quite clear that Mike Pence, while eating at Chili's, would would not have that same, uh, you know, cult following, I think. But, um... I think I think we need to move on and wrap this thing up. So, you have any closing thoughts, Kyle? Um, I I would just close with um, a lot has happened in the last couple weeks, and if you're you know if you're listening to this show, you're probably like us. You probably had convention coverage on all of the last two weeks. Um, I am going to be somewhat happy to get my evenings back, but. I don't really think that the race is very different now. I think that the choice is clearer, and I think that the conventions illustrate the argument that both the Republicans and the Democrats want to make. But going back to some of the other things we've talked about on the show before, the preparedness of the Clinton campaign, the 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 get-out-the-vote operation, the data operation, the fundraising all of the sort of like nuts and bolts of campaigning. I think she has a really significant lead on all of those things. And I think it's going to start to be reflected in the polls in the next few weeks. And I don't really know what Trump can do to change that narrative. And I think we're actually going to be... um, maybe somewhat disappointed that there's not quite as much drama as we thought there might be out of this election. I still feel pretty confident that Hillary is a a pretty solid favorite 
And I don't really think that anything is going to change that. Okay. Um, I would, the slight caveat I would throw in that, because I agree with pretty much everything you said, the, it's more of an addition than a caveat, is that I think it has changed in that the Democratic Party has regained control of their narrative um, and that, you know, the Bernie folks are pretty much subsided and, you know, there's not any, you know, we, we are a unified party now and that Hillary Clinton now is not having to fend off from the left and the right. She's just having to fend off from Donald Trump now. And so I think that's important because I think Hillary Clinton is such a known commodity that it took that happening for her to be able to have a message that's coherent to the American people. And so I think that's really important. The other thing I'd say is we do have one last chance of drama, and that would be the debates, which I think Trump will either have expectations diminished so low that everyone is just shocked by him being barely competent and say that he won, or he will just embarrass himself to a level that has been unseen in presidential debates and you know Hillary will blow him away and well we'll see what happens I think it's too early to speculate on that but um I think I think you are right that I think all the underlying things that we have been talking about and thinking about are going to become clear um and we'll see see the results of all that soon all right so with that I think we will um move on to some end notes for the week um for our show notes I think what we're going to do is put some links or some YouTube clips of some of the big speeches from the convention into the show notes so that you can um, take a look at any of those that you might have missed or any of those that you want to relive. Um, And if we didn't talk about enough about those speeches, about your favorite ones, um, you can send us a complaint at peachpod.podcast at gmail.com. But for... um, well, why don't, Luke, why don't you start us off with your endnote for the week? Yeah, so I think what I'm going to do for mine is I'm just going to mention like my not-headline speech that was my favorite, which was Al Franken. I am a huge fan, a fan of both of the senators from Minnesota. I have all of their books, um, which, uh, shout out to Amy Klobuchar, because she wrote me a very hilarious note when I bought her book of saying, Con- please continue your collection of Minnesota senators' books. Um, <laughs> so Al has as a senator just refrained from being the comedian that he is and he finally let loose on trump and it was just really really great and it was a classic al franken uh you know just speech and it was really really delightful for me so i i was really happy with that and so if you've not heard that i highly highly suggest it what about you kyle what you got um so i wanted to close on a somewhat personal note out of um, one of the really, really brief speeches that I'm sure most people miss. Um, So with Hillary Clinton's candidacy as potentially the first female president of the United States, I've been thinking a lot about my mom, and I've been thinking a lot about my grandmother, her mom, who um, she had told me, my mom had told me about her mom wanting and believing that America needed a female president in a time where that wasn't a very prominent opinion among women. Um, it was a very different time culturally. Um, so I was listening to a speech. The introduction of um, Obama the other night was made by this woman named Sharon Belkofer. 
And her son, I'm going to blank on this detail. I think her son was, um, you know, died in action overseas. And um, she, so she, you know, talked about her son and, um, but she, she closed or sort of in the middle of her speech, she mentioned something that was somewhat remarkable to me. Um, she's a, she's an older woman who has endured a tragedy and you would, you wouldn't really maybe know what she should do, but she talking about her commitment to public service and about the sacrifice that her son had made, um, decided to run for her local school board and I believe ended up serving on her school board. And this is after her son had died and after, um, you know, after she'd sort of gone through the grieving process on this. I was reminded of my mom in this instance, too, because I was home in Florida. Um, this was a couple of years back. And uh, my mom was telling me about something that was going on in um, the local city council of some of this little, small, sleepy beach town, Edgewater, Florida, where they lived for a while. Um, and she said that someone had like mentioned to her that she should consider running for mayor of this little, um, small beach town. And I was like, I've never thought of my mom as a political figure. Um, and I was like immediately like in love with the idea. Um, the, the story doesn't end with her becoming mayor of anything. She, they, my parents ended up moving to the other side of Florida um, but I was, you, both of those things together, I read those in, and thought about those in conjunction with a, um, an article about Bill Clinton's speech where he was reintroducing his wife and reintroducing himself as a supporter of his wife. And the subtext of this speech is that women in this time where we don't think of them as sort of career pursuing figures where they're you know more known as like home figures and and it was you know sort of a different time culturally that women like Hillary Clinton and like Sharon Belkofer who decides to run for her school board have always been doing this sort of behind the scenes um, sort of you know, some might consider it boring, but important work either in the home or outside of the home for your school board or your PTA. And how the one of the sort of silver linings or the one of the sort of notable things about the rise of Hillary Clinton as a presidential candidate is it shines the light on this sort of thankless and behind the scenes work that a lot of women have done um, over previous generations. Um, and so that makes me think of my mom and my grandmother and, and this woman who introduced Barack Obama the other night. And I think it's a, an important personal reflection as you consider how you feel about the election of potential election of the first female president of the United States. I think that's an important thought. And I don't think uh, there's anything better to close us out with that than that. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Uh, with that, uh, we will talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. And that's our show for the week. We thank you for joining us. If you have any feedback for the show, you can reach us at peachpod.podcast at gmail.com. If you found us on iTunes, please leave us a comment and a rating. All those other podcasts say it helps you find their shows, and we would definitely love to be found. We'll be back next week with more pickings from the Peach State. Until then, take care, y'all.